you for joining the Element Church Podcast, where we exist to guide people to experience life to its fullest, connect into meaningful relationships, and make a lasting impact. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope this message inspires and strengthens your faith. Good morning, everybody. How's it going? Is it good? I think it's good. You know, I just like to fact check, you know, how the day's going with everybody coming up here. Uh, you know, I was joking with Jared a little bit on Monday because I'd never heard that song before, Speak Into the Darkness. And there was some debate as to whether or not it was a good song. And I said, man, I will give you the definitive word on Sunday if that's a good song or not. So what do you guys think? Do you like that song? All right. I'm really grateful for our team at Element and just what the Lord has put into their heart. Our worship team, of course, but man, everybody around is such a blessing to me. Uh, my name's Buzz, and I've been here for a month now as the lead pastor, and I'm just immensely blessed. And so whether it's our worship team or our hospitality team or our kids ministry team, student ministry team, you guys attending on Sunday, we have felt so blessed as a family. And so thank you for that. And my hope today is that as we open the word and get into our second week in this Fireforged Faith series, that the Lord would indeed speak into any darkness that we are facing in our life and call us into new life, just like he did in the life of Nehemiah. You know, last week we looked at how Nehemiah was sparked into action and his life's call kind of began to burn in his life. And now today I want to see what happens when he took one step further in following God. What happened next? Was his life just easy in following the Lord? Or what do you think? Did he experience some opposition? We're going to look at chapters 2 through 4 today and, uh, and see how the Lord unpacked Nehemiah and his faith, forging him into something which was built to last. And so let me ask you, what do you do to ensure that something is built to last? What would you do? I would, if I was in a science fair, I would test it, you know? I would test it to see if this, in fact, is going to be something which is built to last. I think you don't know if something's built to last until it actually goes ahead and, you know, lasts. As the British would say, the proof of the pudding is in the tasting. You don't know until you get into it if it's going to be good or not, right? So something can look new, it can look shiny, it can look great, it might even have a warranty, it might even have a money-back guarantee, but until you actually get in there and use it, you're not sure if it's good or not. I'm thinking about like buying a new car, right? Just theoretically, I don't want to buy a new car, I like my old cars, because they work. I know they work. I've driven them in snow. I know they don't fall apart. Amazing, right? I've, I know how much power is in my minivan to get it up and over the mountains. I don't want a new car, right? You could sell me a new car, and I could, maybe it's good, maybe it's great, maybe it's fancy, maybe it has a new transmission, but I don't know. I haven't tested it. So which would you rather drive into a snowstorm? A brand spanking new rental you've never used, or the car that's took you through several Wyoming winters? Which would you pick? You might think the new car, but I think we'd pick the trusted, tried and true, wouldn't you? That's kind of like our, our faith, I think, in a way. You know, when we moved here, you know, we, as I said, we've been here for like a little more than a month. We had to make a lot of these decisions. Do we want something new and shiny and fancy? We'll buy it when we get to Wyoming. Or do we want the stuff that we love that's tried and true and time-tested? And so we had to make a lot of these decisions. The first decision we had to make was our couch. Our couch is terrible. It didn't make the trip. Right. It, you sit on it, it hurt your back, it was stained, uh, somebody sat on it and broke it, like the first week we had it, but it's our couch, we didn't get a new one, you know, but it was like secondhand on Facebook Marketplace, like a Wayfair couch, we paid for it, too much, but it wasn't like that much, it did its job, it held up for a little bit, and then it just reached the end of its life, thank you for your service, let me invite you into the, the, the rubbish bin. That's what we did with my couch, but one thing that did make the trip was my backpack. 
Now, I'm not like a kindergartner going back to school, but for whatever reason, I love my backpack as much as those kids at school do, right? This backpack, I thought about getting a new brand, shinier colors, new nylon technology, but I thought, man, I've had this backpack for 22 years. I don't want to get rid of it. I went to college in this backpack. It carried me through. I went to Haikakoba in Mexico on my honeymoon with this backpack. It didn't break. I went to Sigishwara Castle in Romania in this backpack. It held up. I took this thing through the jungles of Uganda. It held up. And I even took it to Hidden Falls at Kirk County State Park. And it made the trip, you guys, not a thread out of place. And if I showed you the backpack, you'd be like, that's not a cool bag, man. You need a different. But I don't want a different bag. I want the bag that lasts, that trusts, that I have trust in, that will carry me through. My backpack is built to last. My dad has a saying about this. You might have heard it. I don't think my dad invented it, but he says it this way. He says, you get what you pay for. Are you guys familiar with this saying? Right, so my cheap Wayfair couch, I got what I paid for and I tossed it. And my North Face backpack that I had sticker shock in 2000 when I bought that thing, it lasted. I got what I paid for out of each of my products. And you know what? I want to suggest this morning that the same is true for our faith, that in a sense, we get what we pay for. If we don't have a lot of cost, a lot of skin in the game, a lot of even suffering or being forged into something beautiful, our faith can be easy come, easy go, just like my Wayfair couch. But if our faith costs us something and we have memories and we've clung to Jesus through all those tough times, now that's a faith that's worth having. You get what you pay for. You get what you pay for. The great St. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about this in his fantastic book, The Cost of Discipleship. He contrasts real discipleship, like what we've been talking about, with what he calls cheap grace. He says, man, you can't look at the sacrifice of Jesus and say, that doesn't cost me anything. I'm going to go do whatever I want. He says, real discipleship has a cost. You know, I don't know if you know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but he basically gave his life to stand for Christ under Hitler. And that's the kind of a guy that I want to learn from, who can stand in the tough time. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, don't have cheap grace. You get what you pay for. You know, this is one thing I love about the life of Nehemiah as well, is because we're going to see the same principle in action in Nehemiah's life. Last week we saw how he was sparked into action, powered in prayer, and this week we'll see the action start rolling. Now, we're only going to be four weeks in Nehemiah, which means we're about halfway through today, but Nehemiah is like 13 chapters long. And so I'm going to just, oh, I'm just distressed in my soul at how quickly we have to skip through some of these chapters. So I challenge you this week to read through the entire book of Nehemiah. It's amazing. So today we're going to look at chapters 2 through 4 and see kind of the, the work that God did in Nehemiah's life. So last week Nehemiah was ready to have a conversation with the king. And then this week we're going to see and we'll kind of just skip through verses 1 through 8 and summarize them by saying that the king uh, basically agrees to do what Nehemiah is asking him to do. Nehemiah had this vision, you remember, about rebuilding Jerusalem, getting its walls up out of the rubble and making a city uh, once again that, could be, uh, that they could be proud of in the capital, the presence of God there in the temple, that the Jewish people could come home to a real homeland, not a city in captivity. This was his dream. And he stepped out in it, and the king could have said no. The king easily could have said no. But the king basically gives Nehemiah the best possible scenario. He says, go with you. And in fact, I'm going to give you funding. And I'm going to give you letters of authority. I'm going to give you permission to go and do what you want to do. And this has got to be amazing to Nehemiah. Beyond his wildest dreams, everything is going so well. But what often happens when something is too good to be true? There's a catch, right? 
So you're buying that new car, and it's too good to be true. Where's the catch? We're sensitive to this, aren't we? You're getting sold a product. It's free. You're like, no, it's not free. What's the catch, right? There's always a catch. And I think the catch, so to speak, in Nehemiah's life is that even though it started easy, it wasn't going to remain easy. Maybe this resonates with you in your life. Even though it starts easy as you follow Jesus, it doesn't remain easy. Let's look what happens in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2 when Nehemiah gets his project rolling. It says it this way, When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. So in other words, when Nehemiah journeys from the capital of the empire towards his homeland, along the way he's delivering letters to the authorities in those local areas. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. I'm going to read that again. They were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. So what is the first thing that happens as soon as Nehemiah gets this good news, heads out to achieve the call of God in his life? Well, the first thing that happens is Nehemiah faces opposition. Faces opposition. They were very displeased, it says. Then how often does this happen to each one of us? Like we get a spark, just like we talked about last week. We begin to step out and follow Jesus in a new way. And then you run into a bit of opposition. We get to see, is this a spark that's going to die out, that'll be snuffed out? Or is this a spark that will fan itself into flame, that will forge our faith into something even more beautiful? You know, what I find tragic about Nehemiah's opposition is that it comes from the sort of people that you would think would actually be on his team. These local governors, probably, they should be happy that somebody wants to do something good in their territory. They should be happy that one of the captive peoples gets to get some support from the king, right? They should be happy when something good happens to somebody. Uh, You know, this is how it happens for you, right? Like something good happens for you, and then everybody around you is just unilaterally happy for you, right? Oh, no, not right at all. Why is that the way that it is? Something good happens for one of us, and yet so quickly... People come to snuff it out. The kids have a word for this. They call them haters. Have you heard about the haters? Well, (laughs) if you haven't, you're going to find them. You're going to find them, you know? We all face opposition like this from peers or from family or maybe even from people in the church. People who should be happy for you that God is doing something good in your life and they just aren't. And they are very displeased that God is doing a work in your life. You guys experience this type of an opposition? You know, this is a type of opposition I think that we all face. Uh, Number one, I'm going to call it just opposition from other people. If God is doing something in your life, fanning your life into flame, this is an opposition that you absolutely will face. If you faced it, you can just say, amen, or quietly in your heart, amen, because it hurts, right, to face opposition from people, especially people who should have your best interest in mind. And but this isn't the only opposition we face, I don't think. I think maybe number two is perhaps even more common, or maybe it even is for me. And this is opposition from ourselves. Opposition from within ourselves. You know, we blame the haters, but I think so often we are our own worst enemies, in a sense. Sometimes we have like a lack of belief in ourselves. We have a lack of conviction in ourselves. We have good intentions, but we lack discipline or follow-through. Sometimes we lack the fortitude or the focus, or sometimes we just simply lack the desire to choose what is best. We are our own worst enemies sometimes as we follow the Lord. We might have some self-doubt, or we might lack long-term planning, or we 
just try to do our best and simply can't do it. And in fact, the Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 7. I love how he puts it because he says, the thing I want to do, I don't do it. But the thing I don't want to do, I do it all the time, right? Have you felt like this sometimes, that you have this opposition, this war within your members, as Paul says, that you want to do a good thing and follow the Lord, but you are your own worst enemy entangling yourself in it. And if I was preaching Romans 7, I would remind you about verse 8, chapter 1, that says, thanks be to God who set me free from this body of sin and death. So we'll get there, but man, we have opposition from ourselves, don't we? The third way I think we see opposition in life sometimes is from our circumstances. From our circumstances, or what my dad might call the school of hard knocks. You guys experience this? Sometimes stuff just doesn't go your way. It's not your fault. It's not somebody else's fault. It's just life, and life is hard because we live in a broken world. I'm thinking about somebody who had a dream to go study at college, and then they just got sick, and they couldn't go. That's sad. Somebody's fault, but it's hard. That's opposition from circumstances. Or maybe you've started a business and you had a dream and you worked hard and you had a good plan and then just COVID happened and your business didn't make it. It's not your fault. That's just life is hard. It's hard. It has a way of grinding us down, doesn't it? Man, I don't think this is news to you that we face opposition in life, right? Whether it's pushback from others or from yourself or from our circumstances, we've all seen things that God tries to spark in our life almost get snuffed out at the first step because they face opposition. We see that people are very displeased and it kind of chokes the life out of us. Hmm. You know, but I don't want to have a faith that's like that. I don't want faith to be like my couch in the trash can. I want my faith to be something that I carry with me every single day of my life. And so Nehemiah had the same opportunity. He could say when he received that pushback that he could just toss his dream in the trash can and say, it's not worth paying this price. I'll get a new dream later, something that's more in line with what everybody else wants. But let's look a little further down in chapter 2 and see how Nehemiah handled this hardship. Verse 16 puts it this way, The city officials, speaking about the Jerusalem city officials, they did not know that I had been out there looking and scanning and planning. And they didn't know what I was doing, for I hadn't yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, to the priests, or to the nobles, or to the officials, or to anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, You know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been upon me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard of our plan, They scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked? I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. But you have no share, no legal right, and no historic claim in Jerusalem. All right, we'll pause there. I love this section. In my notes, I called it a momentous section. I like that word. Because here we see Nehemiah sharing the vision and his work more widely for the very first time. Whereas before his dream of rebuilding was kind of internal, closely held just amongst a few, now he shares it with the whole city, with the priests, with the nobles, with the rulers, with everybody around in Jerusalem. The dream is kind of coming to life. He doesn't have to struggle so hard alone anymore. 
you know, I feel like Nehemiah sometimes because it seems sometimes like those people who are on your side, they have no clue what's going on. Here we are, two and a half chapters into the book. The people of Jerusalem have no idea that this guy has a dream, a call from God to rebuild this walls and to rebuild the city. The people who are on his side, his teammates, his encouragement, his body of support, they've never even heard of this dream. But the opponents, they like knew every step of the way, didn't they? Like, Nehemiah shares the news, the haters are right there. Nehemiah has a dream, the people are there to squish it. Why does it seem like our opponents see our work more clearly than our friends do? Have you experienced this? Is this just Nehemiah? Is this just me or is this all of us? Like, people who should be on your team, they just, where are they? And the people who are against you, like, we see them all the time. Maybe some of this is confirmation bias, but man... In Nehemiah's life, the people who the work would actually benefit had no idea, and that meant Nehemiah was on an island doing the work by himself. And if you ask me, that's a real recipe for discouragement, isn't it? Going it alone is lonely. It's no way to kind of fan flames of faith in your life. They'll get snuffed out. You'll get tired. We need some encouragement, don't we? We need some encouragement. I don't know why encouragement is such a rare thing to find, because I believe that encouragement often is the least costly thing that we can give, yet the most precious thing to receive. You know, how long would it take you to send a text message to somebody you appreciate? Like 12 seconds? But how much would it cost to receive that? Or what would the gravity of receiving an encouragement message be? It's heavy. It's beautiful. It's amazing. What about at work? Say, man, I see what you do and I am grateful for you. Like that's five seconds as you're flying by. But man, to to receive from somebody at work that they see what you do and that they value it, like that is like a bar of gold. Or those of us who are parents, how long would it take to say to our kids, I see this in you. I love you. I appreciate you. The call of God in your life is big and amazing. It doesn't cost that much. But to be a kid receiving that from your parents, like that is even better than an Xbox. I'd say. I'd say. (laughs) So encouragement costs us little to send at times, but it just matters a lot. You know, at small group this week, I heard uh, something new about Sarah Hawk, one of our children's ministry assistants, and she told me that whenever she goes to concerts, she has to, like, flag down the band somehow, some way, and just let them know that she likes what they do, that she is happy that they are around, that she thanks them for giving their gifts of this ministry to them. Uh, In other words, she will uh, inflict this encouragement on them no matter what. Backstage doesn't matter. Velvet rope doesn't matter. Husband's embarrassed doesn't matter. She's going for it. Right, Adam? Is this true? Okay, it's good. I have some fact checkers in here. I told you this. Right, no matter what, Sarah will let the band know that they are appreciated, that they are loved, and that they are known. And I kind of thought to myself, like, the band, they know, man. Like, they know. They have a CD. They, you remember CDs? They have T-shirts. They're at a concert. So much of a concert that Sarah even bought a ticket to come to see the band. And Sarah, I think, is smarter than me because she knows that that band might be lonely and they might not get some encouragement. And they see new strangers every day on their tour. And so Sarah says, no rope is standing in my way. I'm going to inflict encouragement on them, and it might be a word that changes their life. So this week, I would love to be a little bit more like Sarah, to be honest. I would love to chase someone down, doing great things, doing hard things, doing lonely things, or maybe even just doing normal things and inflict on them a little bit of the same encouragement that Sarah inflicts on these bands. Can we do that this week? Can we be people who don't let people do great works in silence and loneliness, in flying solo? Man, let's breathe some encouragement 
into each other. That's a work that I think will last for a long time. Carrying it alone will burn up, but carrying it together will go far. I think if it's true that you get what you pay for in faith, it's also true that you don't have to pay the price alone. We can come together. We can come together. Let's be an encouraging community this week. What do you say? You know, one of the beautiful things about a faith walk with Jesus, I think, is the, is the dialectic or the battle between uh, two like, seemingly opposing truths. And, and the first truth is that we have to do everything in our power to follow Jesus as well as we can. And we've been telling you about some of that stuff today, like be an encourager and don't go it alone and so on and so forth. And that's a true truth, right? We have to do everything in our power to follow Jesus well. And there's another truth as well, and this is the truth that Jesus paid everything and that he has won the battle and that he has the victory and all we need to do is sit back and let him do the work. And that's true as well, isn't it? And then sometimes these truths kind of come together. Because if Jesus paid it all and he won the victory, can we just like not do anything and like sit back and relax and cash those passive income checks that Jesus paid for? Like, well, no, you got to get in the game and you got to have some skin in the game and you got to fight our battles and just like we're kind of singing about here. And sometimes these truths cause some tension in our lives. This is what makes, I think, discipleship so complicated. Yeah, Jesus paid it all, but yeah, it's up to us. And then we find that we're under the heavy burden of doing everything, and we got to throw it back to our Lord and Savior. Right? Do you guys understand the tension? Have you felt this tension that I'm trying to draw out here? Right? So Nehemiah, I think, is, he's one that doesn't make the mistake of thinking that it's up to him or his own skill. In fact, he gives credit to everything in his life according to the Lord's work. Look how he puts it here in verse 18, which we just read through. He shares his good news by saying what? That the gracious hand of God is upon him. That's what Nehemiah is saying. Not, I have a great call, I have a great plan, I have a great skill, I have a great vision. He's saying, the hand of God is upon me. And then in verse 19, the opposition comes out. But then in verse 20, Nehemiah's message is the same. It is God, he says, who will fight for us. It is God who will fight for us. And it is his purposes that will be accomplished. I love Nehemiah because he's like more forceful than me. He speaks directly to those opponents. And he says things like, you have no place here. You have no historic right here. You have no belonging here. Man, I wonder if we could just say to our circumstances this week, the way that Paul put it in Romans 8, 31, that if God is for us, who can be against us? Man, and say to those circumstances, those mountains in our way, be moved because the mighty hand of God is upon us. Right, not to our own ends, but to the end of God's glory and God's grace. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? But I think sometimes we feel like that, that God's grace or God's support or God's breakthrough power or these kinds of things we're talking about is only for the famous, only for Christian celebrities, only for people who are so amazing they had a whole book of the Bible named after themselves. Maybe it's only for people like your pastor growing up. Like he maybe had God's favor, but, but I don't. Or maybe you think it's just for people like me who are on the stage. And man, let me tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. If you think that God is only for the famous, for the celebrity, for somebody whose name you know, in fact, we have that <laughs> exactly backward. God is for everyone. He is for the, the every person, the lost, the lowly, and the weak. We forget that sometimes. God's breakthrough power is not just for the famous, not just for the celebrity, it's for every single one of us. This is why I love Nehemiah chapter 3, is because Nehemiah takes the time to list painstakingly those who have rebuilt the wall. Now, I'm perpetuating a little bit of a problem I think we have 
with these types of texts here in the United States is you'll see like a long list of names and places you don't know and then you'll just like whoop, skip that chapter to get to something more exciting. Have you ever done that? Put your hand up. Don't put your hand up, right? We've all done it. We've all done it. We consider this flyover territory in our Bible reading plans because who needs this list of unpronounceable strangers who lived long ago? But man, we just wondered to ourselves, is God only for Nehemiah or is he like me too? And then we just skipped a whole chapter of Nehemiah telling us, God wasn't just for me, he was for all these people too. It's amazing. And what I was struck by in reading chapter 3 this week is that just some people got their names listed. There was hundreds, thousands more doing the faithful work of God, and their names are not inscribed in the book of Nehemiah, but God saw them too. And so if you're wondering, does God just see the celebrity or does he see me? I think Nehemiah chapter 3 teaches us that God sees your faithful work. He does. God sees your faithful work. Here at Element Church, we put it uh, in a bit of a different way. We say that it matters. You heard this around here? It matters. We even put this on the wall in the cafe as one of our core values because it matters. No matter what you do, no matter how big or how small or how visible or how unseen or how scaled up like Silicon Valley or how individualized, whatever you do in service to the Lord, it matters. It matters. God sees. And I think about this every time that I preach, because I hope you get a lot out of what I say. I work hard to try to illuminate the scriptures to you, but I think it's likelier that you will be impacted by somebody who's not me, just like I was talking about. Those of us who have our children and e-kids, like that's an amazing gift. Those of you who have had a smiling face greet you on your way in, that might be what you need. Those of you who have a prayer time in the prayer tent, like that's an impact that really matters. Those of us who are impacted by the worship songs today, like that impact matters. Those of you who are encouraging the person sitting right next to you, that matters. God sees that. Those of you who tell a funny joke under your breath to your person, your seatmate, that matters too. That's a good kind of ministry to bring some joy into your life. Maybe you're a family member bringing your family. It matters. It matters. No matter what you do, it matters. It's not just to me to preach, it's to all of us to encourage one another. As the Lord builds this house, this element church, it matters because we are the body of Christ serving one another. So I would encourage you, let your grace go one to another today. Be an encourager, be a servant, be somebody who takes participation in this work because it matters. It matters. You know, this morning we're looking at these ways that our spark can either burn out or it can forge us into something stronger. And we see that Nehemiah looks at the enemy and he calls them out. We're seeing this internal struggle that we have sometimes. And uh, here in chapter 4, as we continue our survey, we're going to see that sometimes it's actually fear which douses our flame. Sometimes it's fear which douses our flame. Look at how Nehemiah puts it starting here in verse 14 in chapter 4. Nehemiah says, as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people, and I said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord, who is great and glorious, and fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives, and for your homes. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated those plans, we all returned to our work on the wall. But from then on, only half my men worked, while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. All the builders had a sword belted to their side, and the trumpeters stayed with me to sound the alarm. 
Then I explained to the nobles and officials and all the people, the work is very spread out and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. When you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it is sounding. Then our God will fight for us. All right, there's a lot there, but did you catch that simple command in verse 14 that Nehemiah leads off with? How does he put it? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I think this presupposes something, which is that the people were afraid of the enemy. With the enemy closing in, it's only normal to worry, to be apprehensive, and to even be terrified. And Nehemiah, though, encourages the people, despite their fear, to press into what God has called them to do. This fear, or this pressure, or this opposition, or this heat, or friction, you, you might even call it. This was something else the Israelites had to press through to have a faith worth paying for to have this lasting faith that stood the test of time. You know, Nehemiah doesn't wait to begin until later when the threat has passed. He doesn't avoid the enemy. He doesn't pass the buck. He doesn't shirk his duty. He does nothing like that. Instead, he doubles down and encourages his people to fight for what is right, for their families, for their city, for the calling of God in their lives. You know, a lack of fear or or courage, or maybe put it another way, trust in the Lord... This doesn't mean that we need to have a lack of action or a lack of preparation. Right? In fact, we see the Israelites here doing just the opposite. They double the guard. They uh, build with a trowel in one hand and a spear in the other. There's a whole system of watchtowers and communication because they knew that the enemy could rush in at any time. They were prepared, and yet even so, the command was to not fear. They were prepared, but that means the command to build still went on. Persevere, despite the pressure and despite the opposition. In a way, the command to build is because Nehemiah trusts that the Lord is the one who does the fighting. You see here down in verse 20 how Nehemiah put it? In a way, our job is to rush in to where the trouble is, to where the persecution is, to where the heat is, and then to bear witness to what the Lord is doing right there in those hot spots. And Nehemiah says it this way, our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. We just have to show up, bear witness, be prepared, and our God will fight for us. I mean, today, if you're feeling discouraged because of opposition that you faced, I think Nehemiah has some good news for you. Because I see in the story of Nehemiah that opposition often means we're doing something right. We have work worth doing. Darkness has something worth pushing back on. Opposition often means you're doing something right. And that's why the enemy wants to stop you. It doesn't mean that God has forgotten you. It doesn't mean he has abandoned you. It doesn't mean he doesn't have a plan for you. In fact, the opposite. I think Jesus wants to invite you into a faith worth paying for, something worth forging, and building you something beautiful as a result. And so today I want to challenge you. Let's build a faith that's worth what you pay for it. Let's pay a little price. Let's get into the game. Let's fight a little battle, man. This is a faith that's lasting, something worth paying for. You know, the book of James puts it this way. I love the book of James, if you haven't noticed. In verse 2, basically James, right off the bat, says it this way. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Great joy in trouble. And I don't really know how to do that. And so 
I texted Tim, and I was like, Tim, could I burn the church down? And he said, no, you can't. I said, are you sure, Tim? And he said, no, I'm pretty sure. And he says, Buzz, you're still new. Can I bring a coal forge out onto the stage? No, you can't. We don't trust you, Buzz. How about like a propane forge? Have you guys seen these? This is what uh, Smiths use, melt metal, melt bricks. Can I use that, Tim? No, you can't. We don't trust you. All right, Tim, what is the maximum amount of flame you'll allow me to have on stage? All right, here we go. This is the maximum amount of my trustworthiness. <laughs> and of course, I'm teasing a little bit, but like this flame kind of represents these pressures, these trials we have in our lives. And it's like fun and cute and camping stovey and all that. But man, the, the trouble we face in our life often is bigger than that, isn't it? It feels sometimes like coal forge levels of trouble. And I'm grateful for Tim and like the don't burn down the building crusade. Like that's a good, that's a good maneuver. Right, but I wanted us to kind of see like what would it look like if we put our lives into this flame. I think some of us are like this, uh, like this piece of uh, equipment right here. You guys know what this is called? This is a sparkler, right? Uh, I was afraid of these when I was a kid. And I think I'm still a kid. You see how far away I'm holding it from my head? <laughs> Sometimes when we get heat in our life, we have a sparkler like this and we think to ourselves, I want to attract a lot of attention about it. I want to go off about it. I want to kind of be seen, be, be a, make a spectacle of it. And I'm going to use this trial that God has put in my life to bring attention to myself. I'm going to make a self-focused type of a crusade. But here's the thing about sparklers. Uh, they burn out pretty quick, don't they? Uh, those of us with kids know, like, man, they keep asking for new sparklers every two seconds on 4th of July. Because if we use the fire in our life to just call attention to ourself, it goes away real fast. Not a lot of substance. Just a lot of spark. Nothing real. And then you just kind of throw it in the bin. And it's out. Some of us treat our life a little bit more like this cardboard, though. And we think to ourselves, like, I know what's going to happen when you put that in the flame. What's going to happen when I put this in the flame? It's going to burn, isn't it? Does anybody build their house out of cardboard? Why not? <laughs> it doesn't last. It just burns up. I think some of us are like this cardboard because we think, I don't even want to get into the fire of faith. I know what it's going to cost. And I'm afraid to pay it, to be honest. I don't want the fire of the Holy Spirit to burn me up. I don't want to be changed. I don't want the opposition. I want to be where it's a little bit more safe. So we even avoid the flame because we know this is what happens to cardboard. Maybe that's you today thinking, should I pay the price to follow Jesus? I don't want to end up like that cardboard. But this is like a rod of iron. It is the least spectacular flame that I'm going to show you on the stage. No sparks, no fire, no smoke. I can put this in the flame for a long time, and it won't burn up. Long time, long time. Not very fancy, kind of understated, a little bit under the surface. But it lasts, doesn't it? I wonder if our faith is kind of like that. That the fancier, the flashier, the more visible, the more attention we draw to ourselves... That stuff burns out. But man, a faith that's built to last, this like fire-forged faith that we're talking about, that's what I want us all to have. Not a faith for the celebrities, not a faith for the names, not a faith for the visible or for the spectacle, but a faith that lasts. I mean, I could have this in here all morning and it wouldn't burn up. This is a fire-forged faith, isn't it? I think there's good news for 
us today if we worry about being like a sparkler or we worry about being like a piece of cardboard or we want to be like that iron but we don't know how to do it. I think Jesus has some good news for us. I love how he put it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says it this way. He says, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things about you because you are my followers. In other words, when you experience opposition from other people for following me, God blesses you. Be happy about it, Jesus tells us. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets, just like Nehemiah, were persecuted in the same way. And Jesus teaches us that no matter what we do, where we go, we're going to experience opposition from people. And he says, be happy about it. But the other thing I love about following Jesus is he doesn't say, just be happy about it. Go figure it out. He really did pay the price for us to do that. Jesus experienced the same type of rejection, the same type of opposition, the same type of forging when he paid the price for our sin, for our death on that cross. Right? And today we want to close our service by celebrating communion. Communion is a, uh, a sacrament or a way that God shows his grace in our lives in a new way. We use this picture, forgive me, uh, of bread and juice. COVID brought us these cups. If you've never done communion here at Element, let me tell you, the pro tip is to open the top bread first. If you open the juice first, you cannot get into that bread no matter how hard you try, right? <laughs> this is pretty simple stuff, isn't it? Bread, juice, stuff we have every day, food, water, the sustenance of life. And Jesus says, this bread, it's like my body, which is broken for you. And so when you're in the trials of life, Jesus says, I broke my body so that I can be there with you. I paid it for you. I paid it all. Then Jesus says, this, this cup, this juice, this wine is like the shedding of my blood for the payment of your sins. When you're in those fires of life and you think, man, how do I stand up? You can just remember, man, Jesus paid for my sin. He paid for this. I can just give it to him. He will carry it. The best way to be a fire-forged faith is to come close to Jesus. So I've invited Jared to come back out here and lead us in... Uh, the very first song that we sang this morning, which was that there's a table that you've prepared for me, this one, in the presence of my enemies. So as you feel led during the song, participate in the worship and come down and take these communion elements, take and eat and drink in remembrance of our Savior, who lays a banquet table no matter what we're facing in life, who is forging us into something beautiful by his death, his resurrection, and his saving life. Would you worship and remember with me? If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe and rate this podcast or follow us on social media. To learn more about our gathering times in Cheyenne, Wyoming, or to take your next step, visit our website, elementchurch.life. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you next week right here on the Element Church Podcast.